Well, let's turn our Bibles to Psalm 65 as we continue with this worship service. And I hope that you understand that preaching the Bible is still worship. We didn't finish worship when we sat down and stopped singing. We, we continued in worship when I led in prayer. And we continue in worship as we read God's word and as we exalt over exposition. One of my favorite definitions of preaching is expository exaltation. We take the Bible and we exalt over what's happening in Scripture. And the Psalms are just an excellent place for us to find things to exalt in. All of them are filled with so many different nuggets. But Psalm 65, we've been blessed. Here on a Christmas day, it is filled with such rich God-centeredness. I am confident that just reading it and rereading it, you would be immensely blessed from this psalm. And so I think we have the privilege to just walk through it. There's three sections. And like a, a Christmas present as a metaphor, we're going to unwrap the package of Psalm 65 one at a time. In my family growing up, we had the very ordered kind of opening up presents routine. My dad would distribute them out, either oldest to youngest or youngest to oldest, whatever the routine might have been for that year. And then we all sat and we watched as each person opened the present. And then we'd say, wow, great. Oh, that's cool. Picture time, this or that. And it would take sometimes hours, you know, because it's a lot of presents for five kids. And we shared with one another. Some people have the uh, let's just tear them all open the first time you wake up routine. And I know nothing of that. And if that's you, then you're maybe not going to like this slow unfolding of Psalm 65 but I think the idea of unwrapping a present will provide a useful idea for Psalm 65. Because when you open a present that's wrapped up, I think there's three phases. First, there's the unwrapping phase where you open and let's say it's a box, and then you see what's the picture on the box. And you're like, oh, a, a box of Legos or a baby doll. But that's, that's just phase one. Phase two is actually unboxing, unpackaging the box. This happened with my daughter Lucy this morning. She got a box of Duplos. And when she opened it, she was excited about these Duplos. They go in the bath and she can play with them in the water. And she liked them. But you know what she wanted? She wanted them out of the box. She didn't want the box. The picture on the box was exciting. The joy on her face was exuberant, you know, exhilarating. But it's no good just looking at a picture in the box. you got to open the box, and then there's the third phase. What if she opened the box and played with the box? Or what if she opened the box and saw it and was disappointed? Oh, really? That's what it is? No, the third and final step for a good present is then playing with the toy, throwing her in the bath and being like, yay, let's play. So I present to you Psalm 65, Unpackaging, unboxing, and playing. And we'll do it stanza by stanza. And I promise you won't be here all day. But there's three sections. And let's first unwrap section one. To the choir master. A psalm of David. A song. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come when iniquities prevail against me. You atone for our transgressions, 
Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. There are three poetic pictures that we will see about peace on earth. If you want one simple big idea, Psalm 65 paints three poetic pictures of peace. First, picture number one, what did we just unwrap? What's on the box? An emotional peace on earth. A satisfaction in the holy presence of God in his temple courts. You see this especially in verse three and four. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. And then notice the picture here in verse four. Happy, blessed happiness is the one that you have chosen and then bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied. This is the satiated, satisfied, so content. The picture is being in home, having a Christmas dinner and feeling like, Mmm, that was good. I don't want any more. I'm happy. I'm blessed. The goodness of dwelling in God's house and in the holiness of his temple. But did you notice the relationship between verse 3 and 4? The only way for that blessed, happy contentment is because of verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me. Now this is an ugly part of the picture. But it's part of the way the scriptures work, isn't it? Where it is honest and raw about the ugliness of the earth. And then the beauty of the gospel is how it transforms ugliness and turns it into gold. Think of the cocoon, the picture of that caterpillar climbing into that ugly cocoon. But then out blossoms this beautiful butterfly, that's what I mean. The ugliness in verse 3, the death in the cocoon is when iniquities prevail against me. Iniquities is one of those words in Hebrew that could mean some kind of crooked sin done or it could mean the heavy guilt that you bear. And that's why I said that this is a kind of emotional peace, an inner peace in God's house There is satisfaction in his presence because the guilt, the heavy burden of this iniquity is, and then the word prevail is overwhelming, flooding. It's the word used in Genesis 6, first time it appears. For the waters prevailed over all the tops of the mountains. Prevailed, as in it overwhelmed the mountaintops. And I know that this picture is pointing to a reality, isn't it? Of a kind of guilt, of knowing well how bad you have messed up in this world and that that sin it prevails it overwhelms me and then it says in verse 3 but God atones for our broken relationship that's the best simple translation I can give you for the word transgression pesha in Hebrew broken trust broken relationship so there's lack of peace with God in God's house but there is a kind of covering that brings about blessed happiness. Do you got the picture? It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Pictures are nice. That's what the box looks like. You should already have a smile. Oh, that's what this is about? That's what Psalm 65 is about? 
Step two, let's open the box. This picture is not poetry. It's real. This picture in Psalm 65 took on flesh and bones in the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas is about real atonement for our sins. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus was told that he would be given a name, and that name would be Yahweh saves. Jesus is Yahweh saves for the reason given for that name is that he will save his people from their sins. No matter how crushing, no matter how overwhelming your guilt is, no matter how deep the betrayal of trust has been with God first and foremost, you can be invited into his house and experiencing the bliss of the blessing of being able to dwell satiated. Oh, I am in the inner court of God's temple. Ephesians 2.14 says this, For Jesus Christ himself is peace. He is our peace. He makes us one. He breaks down in his flesh the dividing wall that has brought about hostility. He creates in himself a new man from the two kinds of men in the world. He has made peace and reconciled us to God, Ephesians 2 says, through his cross. And he then kills hostility. That's the gospel. We're not talking about just beautiful poetry in Psalm 65. We're talking about Christmas. The prince of peace who walked the earth, flesh and bones, real human who brought peace. There is real peace with God. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He came. It happened. Don't just look at the picture, though. And don't just open the package and say, that's not just the picture. Have you guys ever had that experience, by the way? My dad loved to play jokes on us. He would get a package, and let's say it's like this cool television or something, right? But inside, it wasn't a TV. It'd be something else. Sometimes it'd be cooler. Sometimes it'd be like, what in the world is this? That was such a letdown. Every single time, I promise you, in this sermon and in the scriptures, the picture of this poetry, when it's opened up in Jesus, is so, so much better than the picture. It's like going to the Grand Canyon this summer with my family, first time we've ever been there, and then you step out for that first time. It was early in the morning. No one was around. It was peaceful, and we just sat there. <gasps> Some of us talked too much, but we sat there. <gasps> And until you're there, you see the pictures. And I promise you this, I promise. I thought for sure I had seen the Grand Canyon before. I thought for sure that it would just be like all the pictures I've seen. And then I stepped to the precipice and felt the smallness of my human body compared to the vastness. And I was like, it's way better than the picture. Jesus Christ coming in and bringing peace is way better, but it's even better than that experience. You can play with the toy. You don't just get it out and look at it and say, oh, that's cool, it's beautiful, that's breathtaking. You can actually have peace with God and put it into action. Play with peace. First, each and every one of you, do you need to make peace with God right now and receive afresh that you have sinned and those sins feel at times guilty and heavy and overwhelming and they go way over your head and that feeling does not have to define you for the rest of your life. 
believe by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive it, the overwhelming, there's just nothing left I can do. Verse 1, actually, there's debate as to whether or not it's praises due to you, and you have a little footnote in the ESV, and it should be praises silence to you. This kind of, I am so overwhelmed by my guilt, I have nothing left to say, I don't know what to do, and there is a kind of posture that comes into God's temple that says, God, you've got to do it. And praise be to God that through Jesus Christ, he's done it. You can receive it. So don't just look at the picture, don't just open the package, receive by faith right now. Through the preaching of the gospel, turn from your sins and realize how dead they are making your miserable life without Jesus Christ. Feel the burden lifted. Like Christian in the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, when he stares and gazes at the cross, that heavy burden he was carrying for his whole journey, it just starts falling down and falls rolling into the grave. Secondly, don't just receive peace with God by repentance and faith. Live out that peace in the local church so that this house, Embassy Church, becomes a house of peace where each of us forgive one another in the same way that Jesus forgave us. This is what I mean by play. Could you imagine if community was filled with people that were not, were not only forgiven by Jesus and experiencing the freedom and the joy of that forgiveness, but extended it to one another no matter how dark and deep the pesha is, the brokenness of trust. Brothers and sisters, I am not talking about just mere pie-in-the-sky theories. I am talking about nine years of pastoring a group of people here in the northwest suburbs of Chicago who have sinned against each other, and by God's grace, they have repented and forgiven one another, and relationships have been restored. This, This is real. This is not just Psalm 65, poetically beautiful. This is the experience I think many of you have seen time and time again when we obey Scripture. And we live, as far as it depends upon us, peaceably with everyone. And we experience the blessing of the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. So I encourage you that if there is any sin that you have done against someone, then make urgent priority to reconcile with them. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with one another. If God has so forgiven you in this miraculous wonderful, overwhelming way, then how do you put a stiff arm to say, well, this little sin or grievance against me, I'm not going to forgive them. That's the first picture, the first present that we've unwrapped is verses one through four. Now we need to turn to five through eight, and we will see not just an emotional peace of being satisfied in God's presence, but we will see an external peace And here I'm calling this picture the stillness of all peoples. And I'm getting these words straight from the psalm, so follow along as I read and unwrap for you verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. 
You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. The picture on the box here in this second stanza is awesome deeds done with righteousness by the God of our salvation, which leads to, look at verse 5 carefully, hope. You could also translate that word trust or confidence. It's not wishful thinking hope. This is deep-rooted confidence by all peoples to the ends of the earth. This is corresponding to verse 2. Did you notice the way verse 2 said, O you who hear prayer to you shall all flesh come. All flesh, all peoples, to the ends of the earth. So the salvation that God's bring is not to a small tribal deity, to a small group of people that were chosen in verse 4, but to the ends of the earth. God chose a people so he would save all peoples. And that's why it talks about the farthest seas. Ends of the earth, farthest seas, that's a mirrorism where it's saying every inch on the planet, hope will go out as far as the eye can see. And so you're supposed to imagine yourself standing at the edge of the ocean and as far as you can see to the end reaches of the waters. That's where hope extends. The one who by his strength established the mountains and is girded with might. If the first picture in verses 1 through 4 was about the presence of God, the second picture is about the power of God, the God of creation, who is girded with great strength and might, who who established the mountains. This one has power to do what, verse 7? Power to still the sea, still the storm, the roaring seas, the roaring waves, the tumult of the people. The tumult of the people is contrasted with or compared to seas. The raging waters is not raging waters. The raging waters are peoples, tribes, languages, governments, kingdoms. That's what our psalm is talking about, which is why I said the picture here is external peace. Imagine you're at home. You're enjoying a wonderful Christmas meal, and you feel that satiated feeling like, oh, that's the picture of Psalm 65, the first one. Just feeling so content. But imagine that, but more, where everybody in your family, you're at peace with one another where you're living in your house and it's good. But what if just outside of your house, there is war? There are terrorists. What if there is all kinds of chaos by the government everywhere you turn? It might be nice inside your house, but what about outside your house? That's how our psalm builds on itself. Inside the house and outside of the house. Everywhere you turn, there is hope. And he has power to still the storm and calm the seas which are peoples, which is why verse 8 says, those who dwell at the very ends of the earth will stand in all of your signs of salvation. That's how verse 5 began. They're standing in all declaring the awesome deeds of God's righteous salvation. There's the picture. From the going out of the morning to the going out of the evening. And that's not about time. That's about where does the sun rise? The farthest stretch where the sun rises over the waters all the way over to the farthest stretch of where the sun sets. It's a picture of the expanse of God's hope stretching to every corner of the universe. It's a beautiful picture. 
But we don't want to stop there. It's one of those unwrappings. You're like, oh, that, oh, I'm excited. Get more excited. What if we opened up the package? What if we pulled out what's inside? What would we find? We would find that this God is not talking in poetry. He literally was born in a manger, grew up as a man, and walked on water. He's a water walker. He, he rules over the waters. And remember, waters represent in the Bible chaos and evil and nations that are opposed to God's people. He's going to walk over them. This is not just some cool party trick. Hey, guys, look what I can do. I can walk on water. He's declaring to you theologically, I'm the God of Psalm 65. Oh, but you guys already know Mark 4, the better story that portrays the stillness of the seas. He's sleeping in a boat, quiet, unbothered by anything, a heavy sleeper, we could say. And there his disciples are flipping out because there's a massive storm in the Galilee Sea. And Jesus wakes up, and do you know the words he says? Peace. Be still. Peace. Peace on earth. Jesus Christ truly walked the water and stilled the storm. And he has the power that Psalm 65 is talking about. It would be cool if we had a prophetic, poetic word like Psalm 65. That'd be good. You know what's better? When that picture is animated by real human life and he gets up in a boat and he says, peace, and everything's still. If he can do that because he's the creator God, then there is not one relationship that you have in this life that won't be able to be reconciled. That's, that's not a possibility. You have a little God if you think your big reconciled problems are too big for him. So let's repent of our unbelief and not just open the package. Let's play. Let's play, friends. Embassy Church, remember that Ephesians 2 didn't just say in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace, but listen to these words right after that. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. He preached peace to those who are far off. So that there would no longer be strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with saints and the members of the household of God. What would it look like for us to see the beauty open the package, and play. What would that look like? It would look like us preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. It would look like us putting to death racism and prejudice in our hearts and saying, ooh, I don't, I don't want, want to talk to that person down, down the aisle from me at church. They have that skin color. They're wearing those clothes. Did you see what they look like? Did you, did you smell them? What, what sort of prejudice do you have? And is the gospel being rightly applied so that you can create a community of people where everyone feels welcome in this house of God? Brothers and sisters, I kid you not, a couple weeks ago, we're in Wednesday Bible study. And I'll leave this person nameless, but those who are there know who I'm talking about. We're in Wednesday Bible study, and we're talking about how genealogies end racism. You should have came to Wednesday Bible study. Genealogies when you finally carry out their theological message, there's no more genealogies in the New Testament after the genealogy of Jesus because we're all one 
and your family history and whether or not you're tethered to Abraham or anybody else, it doesn't matter because what really matters is, is Jesus Christ your father? Is he your brother? Are you in his family? That's what matters. And if we believe that, then we're not going to care about, well, I'm from this pedigree. It would end racism. That was my point. And one of our church members, out of nowhere, I didn't ask this person to say this. They said, that's true. I used to be a racist. And I was like, whoa, hey, time for honest confession. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of Galatians chapter 3, that there is now no more male and female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Jesus Christ. It rocked me to the core and I'm not a racist anymore. That's real. I'm not talking about just a picture on a box. Oh, and then we opened it. Well, that's cool. We're talking about it being applied in the heart and changing the way someone looks at a different ethnicity. Embassy Church, let's pray for more unity and diversity like we did earlier in the service. Wouldn't it be awesome if our name wasn't just a name, but a prophetic word when we first started nine years ago, that we would be a a collection of people that reflect heaven itself and not just the cliques and the ways that people want to spend their time together where, oh, I want to be around people that are just like me. You know what I absolutely love is when some older folks hang out with younger folks and with people who have a whole lot hang out with those who have nothing. This is real. It's happened. It's happening. I think it's going to happen some more. Third, and finally, we see a picture of emotional peace in the heart, of being satisfied in God's presence. We see an external peace where there is the stillness of the storm and every person on the earth has hope in Jesus Christ. Third, an environmental peace, a surplus from the pasture. This, my friends, will knock your socks off. I'm saving this one for the last, not just because it's the last, because it's the best. The picture here is dripping. Watch. You visit, verse 9, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The rivers of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. An agricultural peace, a peace with this earth, a peace with the land. And I think peace is actually a fitting word, not just because it's Christmas. It's fitting because throughout the scriptures, the word for peace is about wholeness, when things are working right. So if you have a, a building and on the side wall, you've got a bunch of bricks, but then a few bricks like fell out, it's incomplete. It's missing something. And this is not missing anything. The picture here is about complete fullness where it is overflowing. It's brimming to the top everywhere you turn from verse 9 to verse 13. Remember, this poem was sung and it was written in the Middle East. It was written in the desert. 
And so when you've got the river of God being full of water, it's saying there's no parched riverbeds. It's teeming with life. The abundance of the grain that he has prepared. But I want to especially point in, verse 11 had that jaw drop moment for me in the study. Look when it says, you crown the year with your bounty, which is, I think, a reference to the end of the harvest year, and it's being crowned with God's bounty. Not the people who were working the farm, but the one who provided for the farmers, and he's the one getting the honor and the glory for the rich, abundant harvest. But then it gets better. Your wagon tracks overflow, and then here's the actual literal word, with fatness. So here's the picture of overflowing surplus, you've got a farmer that's collecting and he is raking it in and he has so much that his wagon is now full and overflow. And as he starts heading back home, stuff just keeps falling off the sides because there's not enough space in the cart of the wagon that's being pulled. And it says it's fatness, meaning that it's just like the rich, fat resources of the earth are so full that it's enough for everybody. Guys, this is an incredibly beautiful picture. Wouldn't it be amazing if you lived on the earth right now, this earth, and there was just life flowing. There was no famines. There was no lack or, or need. There was no wondering, is inflation going to get higher and higher in 2023? Are we going to be able to buy groceries? Eggs are ridiculously expensive right now. Amen? Like, oh my goodness, what is going on in this world? And imagine if you just didn't have those thoughts whatsoever. It was just stocked shelves, pantries packed, stores of abundance. However you need to interpret it for your day today, right now, that's what I want you to start imagining as a picture. But it's not just a picture. This isn't just poetry. This is actually what happens when God visits the earth in the person of Jesus. The first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding. And he has the ability to take water, and not just a little bit of water, not just like a little water bottle water, gallons and gallons of water, 20, 30 gallon jars. He turns regular cleansing water where people would have got washed up with, and he turns it into the choicest and best wine. If you don't believe that the God who painted this picture in Psalm 65 can literally come down to the earth and change the actual abundance of a harvest, then you're missing the story of the wedding at Cana. This God does just that. He's amazing. He will take the brokenness that you experience with weather and whatever you want to think about with global this and environmental that. Jesus will be the one that puts an end to the environmental issues when he returns. He already started doing it when he first came. So put your hope not in our ability necessarily to save the planet, but in our God who will save the people and the planet. That's the hope of the gospel. Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana is just the tip of the iceberg. The parable of the soils or the comment that he makes to the rich young ruler talks about this 30-fold and 60-fold. Do you remember that story where Jesus is talking to a rich young man? And he's like, look, I got everything. I'm doing well. So am I going to enter the kingdom of God? He's like, you should sell everything you have and then give to the poor. And the guy's like, oh, I don't want to do that. Follow Jesus means give up everything I have and and, and sell it and give it to the poor? No thanks. And the guy goes away sad. 
And then the disciples are sitting back and they're thinking, so wait, you're telling me that a dude that as far as we understand is blessed. He's got it going on. He's going away sad. Well, what about us? We don't have anything. We're poor fishermen. We're not coming from the high elite in society. And so then that's when they ask Jesus, what about us? And he says, those who have given up everything in this life will not fail to receive a hundredfold in the age to come in eternal life. Do you get the picture of abundance that's awaiting you in the new heaven and new earth? When the Garden of Eden that I believe is the backdrop of Psalm 65 gets remade in the future garden Jerusalem temple that comes down from heaven in Revelation 21, 22? Oh, brothers and sisters, members of Embassy Church, the way you think about finances, the way you plan for the future, how you spend things, the way that you care for one another in this church, the playing out of this actual picture of Psalm 65 will be that if you truly believe that there is a waiting for you, a, a rich harvest, a party like no other, where, where the whole earth is singing with joy, girding up clothes, and look at the clothes that it's wearing. It's wearing clothes of flocks where it's covered up with joy. The wilderness is a place that's typically known for having no life in it, but the wilderness is overflowing. If God, in his kindness, is painting us not just a picture, but then showing us the deposit, the down payment of a future heaven and earth, where we will have more than you could ever imagine, how might that set free your ability to be generous now? What, what if we didn't just look at the toy out of the package and say, what should I do with that? I mean, imagine just a bunch of Legos and they're just sitting on the floor. There's the picture, there's the Legos. This psalm is encouraging you, put it together. Play with it, do it, put it into action. And thankfully, the Church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout embassies history has done just that. Whether it's in Acts chapter 2 when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking bread. Notice this in Acts chapter 2. It says, everybody that believed, they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and they distributed the proceeds to any as had need. Two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, all those who believed had one mind, one heart, and they said to one another that everything that they had that belonged to them was now everybody else's. And there was great power with the apostles as they shared the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Grace was upon them. And this verse, this line should be Embassy Church. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. That's what it looks like. To not just look at a picture, not just pull out the package, but play. Put it into practice. Embassy, there is not a needy person among them. I'm sure with each of these pictures, each of these presents, there's more we could do. But I do want to encourage all of you on this Christmas day, I don't think that we're lacking on any of these three pictures. I've seen all three of these things happen. People generously giving of their time, giving of their money. It is so amazing to me being a pastor because some of you just come to church and you get to know a few people, but I get to know all of you and I get to hear stories of people that are giving money and time and energy to all kinds of things. And you have no idea that it's going on. 
They actually like obey the Bible. Like the spirit of God is in them where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And so somebody sitting across from you, they might be one of the biggest and most generous people that, and you, you have no idea about. The people of God, with the presence of God, satisfied because their sins have been forgiven, being encouraged and welcoming and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, you're just willing to share. Isn't that a beautiful church? Isn't that a beautiful church? Isn't that embassy church? It is. Already now. It is. And we want to pray for it to be more the case. And so as we take the Lord's Supper now, I think you can see all three of these key ideas put into practice. Think about it. 1 Corinthians 11 says, first and foremost, don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Do it in understanding who God is in the person of Christ to die on the cross for your sins. If you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, first and foremost, have your sins forgiven. Have the, the feeling of peace with God. That's step number one to take the Lord's Supper. If you don't have peace with God right now or peace with another brother or sister in this church, you should not be taking the Lord's Supper. And there are times where your elders will sit you down and say, right now, during this season, we don't think you should take the Lord's Supper. And then there'll be times where you will hear the call to take up the bread and the cup and you will know in your heart of hearts, I shouldn't be eating drinking right now. I am eating judgment on myself by acting like everything is good with me and the Lord and me and my brothers and sisters. Don't do that. Make urgent haste to eat and drink in a worthy manner. And notice that in this picture of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells them, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat because the rich are going ahead of the poor. Classism, not unity amongst diversity. We're better than you. And so we have the privilege now to have all of us eat and drink together at the same time to display our unity of the one loaf, eating and drinking because we're all the same in Jesus Christ. And there shouldn't be racism and prejudice. There's not some extra special front rows here. Be like, okay, you guys get to eat first and you get special stuff and everybody back there, the lesser of society. We don't do that here. And we shouldn't in our hearts either. And so to eat and drink in a worthy manner is to eat it with great unity in our relationships, peace with God in this house of God, but also in the way that we think about one another based on whatever way the world might want to divide us. And lastly, it should display our generosity. That if he is feeding us with the most important things, not just food, water, but he's feeding us in our faith, He's feeding us with the gospel. He's feeding us with the hope of that even if there's a terrible famine, even if the economy blows up and over the next two years we're just scraping by and some of us literally die of starvation. I can't promise that that won't happen. You can know and have hope to the ends of the earth no matter where you live or who you're with. He's returning. And Psalm 65 will come true in the fullness, not just the tip of the iceberg, but with wine in abundance with rich food, with fat overflowing the side, and we'll be able to just share with everybody. So, let's take the Lord's Supper together on this Christmas day, and let's do it in responsible, sober faith, trusting in God's word as it instructed us. But first, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this picture of peace, 
peace with you, peace with one another, peace throughout the whole world to the ends and the edges of the earth. We thank you for the picture of generous, abundant harvest. And in all these things, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, your grace upon grace. And that in each of these cases, Lord, we have seen the glory of the one and only, the glory of the one who was sent from heaven down to earth and displaying for us the one who makes atonement and covers over our shame and takes away the heaviness of the burden of our guilt. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place and rose again from the dead and pours out the Holy Spirit as he is our intercessor and high priest. The one who did go into the heavenly courtroom, the real temple that the tabernacle was just a shadow of. And there he was representing each and every one of us and saying, they're mine. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can now be in Christ, seated in the heavenlies. And therefore, we can all be united and one with one another. And the dividing wall that breaks us apart can be broken down itself. Oh, Father, we are so thankful and overwhelmed with joy that you have abundantly provided all that we need and so, so much more. I pray that we would believe your word by faith, not just its poetic picture or its concrete, real partaking of flesh in the person of Jesus, but I pray we would believe and put it into practice and live as if these realities are true. Oh God, would you do that now as we eat and drink in a worthy manner, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.